You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Thursday, February 1st. I'm Erin Fulton with Raven News. The Sitka School District is in the usual budget bind as it plans its finances for next year, with an unusual twist. Thanks to a pair of recent ballot measures, there is significantly more local money available to spend on schools, but no mechanism to apply it where it's most needed, in the classroom. The Sitka Assembly and Sitka School Board put their heads together during a joint work session in January to try and find a way to supplement the school budget without jeopardizing the community's share of state education funding. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. This is the weirdest budget year for the Sitka School District in recent memory, but it's not really unique to Sitka. There are other communities awash in excess sales tax revenue from the rebound in cruise tourism, like Juno, which want to support schools because they feel the state has throttled education funding by failing to raise the BSA. That's the base student allocation, or the amount of per-pupil funding for public schools. This is Sitka School Board President Tristan Gavon's frequent line of attack. I've mentioned this to you before that the base student allocation has only been increased $30 since July 1st, 2016. Uh, in that same time frame, we've had almost 30% inflation. So that has had a huge impact on our district. Um, you've seen the loss of positions like the Blashley Librarian, Science Enrichment at Keat Gushaheen, um, a number of other things that, you know, it's been these kind of small cuts over time, uh, you know, death by a million cuts. Fairly well-off communities like Sitka have made up some of the difference by contributing money outside the cap, or above and beyond what state law allows municipalities to contribute to education. Outside the cap spending in Sitka in recent years has helped pay for student travel, the community schools program, and utility costs at the Blatchley Swimming Pool and the Performing Arts Center. Last year, however, the state signaled that it was going to start cracking down on outside-the-cap spending, which would force Sitka schools and other districts to absorb these costs, count them towards the cap, leaving less money for teaching. Sitka Assemblymember Tor Christensen has children in school and shared his dismay over the state's crackdown. I find it incredibly frustrating that not only are they not wanting to pay for the schools, but they're not wanting to let us do it either. Christensen is far from alone in his opinion. Sitka voters in 2022 passed an additional 6% sales tax on marijuana to support school activities, which brings in an estimated $300,000 a year. And last year, they passed a 1% sales tax increase during the summer months to support maintenance and replacement of school infrastructure. The annual revenue could land around $2 million. Neither vote was close. Mayor Stephen Eisenbeis said Sitkins were sending a message. The community has really stepped up in order to, to fund the schools. Um, to get two tax increases passed is pretty much unheard of in this community. Um, in the last 20 years, I think it's probably the only two that we've ever done on ourselves. The solution to this problem has already emerged out of necessity. Last year, the city established a Parks and Recreation office to take over the functions of community schools. Now, the conversation is on school maintenance. The buildings all belong to the city. Why not transfer the district's maintenance department into municipal government? The net savings would be almost half a million dollars for schools, which could then apply it towards instruction. It will save, basically, if we go this direction, if we can get it pulled off, 
uh, we'll say three to four teaching positions, I believe. That's Interim District Superintendent Steve Bradshaw, who offered no resistance whatsoever to the plan. In fact, when Assemblymember J.J. Carlson asked if there were plans to transfer the swimming pool to the city, Bradshaw did not hesitate. You can have it today if you would like it. <laughs> no action was taken at the work session, but assembly members agreed to give the school maintenance takeover serious consideration. The school board will resume its budget work at its next regular meeting on February 7th, but the question of maintenance could be eclipsed by a presentation from the committee exploring the renaming of Baranoff Elementary School. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Wolsey. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game announced this month that fishing for yellow eye is again prohibited in southeast Alaska this year. Yellow eye are a popular species of rockfish, but their populations dropped in recent years, which has fish and game biologists concerned. As KRBD's Jack Darrell reports, tight fishing regulations could be helping yellow eye, but it will be a long time before we know for sure. There are seven species of demersal shelf rockfish lurking in the depths of southeast Alaska. Quillback, China, Copper, Canary, Rosethorn, Tiger Rockfish, and Yellow Eye. According to Fish and Game, all of them have experienced population decline in recent years. But among all of them, Yellow Eye is the most common and the most sought after. The Fish and Game announcement earlier this month isn't a change. The commercial fishery in southern southeast Alaska for demersal shelf rockfish closed in 2020. The fishery in the northern part of the region shuttered in 1995. In the intervening years, the Board of Fish has added restrictions to sport and recreational fishers as well. All DSR species are still fair game for southeast subsistence fishers. Non-residents fishing in any capacity are banned from retaining any demersal shelf rockfish. New harvest regulations are looser than in previous years. In 2021, retaining any DSR was illegal for recreational fishermen. This year, Ketchikan residents can take home up to three rockfish, as long as none of them are yellow eyes. Chris Baldwin has run a charter fishing boat for over a decade. He says he supports the continued closure. So we support regulations. If the fishing game thinks that they're declining, um, you know, they need to be protected. Baldwin says it's not rare, though, for the big orange fish to end up as bycatch for a halibut or lingcod angler. And so it also presents a challenge when you get those big yellow eyes to descend them because we're required to descend them if we don't want to retain them. Rockfish live their whole lives near the seafloor. Baldwin says when they are yanked to the surface by a fishing line, the nitrogen in their body expands, making them buoyant. This greatly reduces their chance of returning to deep water or surviving the encounter. That's why the Board of Fish required all sport and charter fishermen to have a descending device on board. It hits a certain pressure and just opens up, so you clamp it around the mouth. I hook it to my downrigger and drop it down, and then it releases the fish. Yellow eye so named for their prominent yellow eyes, make their homes among the rocks deep below the surface. With their spiny dorsal fin, bright orange, yellow, and red coloring, they sort of resemble an underwater fireball. They're a popular catch among sport fishermen because of their look, size, and according to Baldwin, they put up a good fight. They definitely fight differently than other types of rockfish. They're also one of the longest living fish species in the world, sometimes surviving to be well over 100 years old, until their southeast Alaska populations went in a freefall. Alex McCarroll is a biologist with Fish and Game. She says that since yellow eye often live for so long, they grow slowly and mature late, meaning that fishing them on a season-by-season basis can have a major effect on the health of the population. This also means getting the fish back to a healthy level may take longer than other overfished species. So we don't know for sure, 
but it could be a combination of environmental factors like the blob that happened in the North Pacific, um, as well as fishing pressures and their life history characteristics. Uh, Yellow-eyed rockfish are particularly vulnerable because they're long-lived species. The blob was a marine heat wave that occurred in the 2010s, a mass of warm water in the North Pacific Ocean that persisted for nearly three years and had a pronounced negative effect on sea creatures like rockfish. Rhea Ayersman leads ADF&G's groundfish monitoring efforts in Southeast. She says they measure demersal shelf rockfish with remotely operated vehicles on the seafloor, as well as data from bycatch in the commercial halibut fishery. So that's how we survey yellow-eye rockfish to come up with a density estimate, which gets expanded out to biomass estimate. So we're doing these surveys um, that are feeding into stock assessments. Just before the 2020 fishery closure, Fish and Game report a 60% decline in yellow-eye biomass since the mid-90s. Fish and Game says they will continue monitoring the species with hopes for reopening the fishery in the future. Until then, fishermen will have to continue to descend them back to the deep. In Ketchikan, I'm Jack Darrell. City officials in Wrangell say they hope to collaborate with other Southeast communities to build a webpage with landslide risk information. Acting Borough Manager Mason Valarma says he's already initiated the idea to the Petersburg City Manager. Why not partner with a neighboring municipality on this? And I think that would be an efficient use of resources. And many of our citizens travel back and forth for work and sports and to Petersburg, so I think it's a good thing to pursue jointly. Valarma was in Petersburg in January when the city hosted a work session with the Sitka Sound Science Center. Researchers there helped to design an online landslide advisory dashboard in Sitka, which designates landslide risk as low, medium, or high based on weather conditions. Valarma says that system could be a model for what Wrangell creates, along with Petersburg and other communities that want to participate. Valarma says he's met with a city manager in Haines, too. Just kind of getting the ball rolling. We haven't got to meet all on the same call or anything yet, uh, but we're going to continue those conversations. And I think uh, just having us and WCA, uh, ideally Petersburg Borough and Haynesboro, uh, with potentially their tribal entities or local tribal entities would be a great pool of resources. Alarma says collaborating would really reduce the cost of starting up the platform. Data collection streams would still be independent and require separate equipment. Further conversations will hopefully result in some buy-in. Uh, we're likely not going to, our, our advisory system that we're promoting would not look uh, like sick as explicitly, we'd probably have some nuances and probably wouldn't have the color-coded LIDAR. We'd probably just have, you know, a conditions assessment. For now, Valarma says that governments are cautious due to liability risks. More conversations are needed to see that all communities are open to sharing a platform. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News.